everyone, and welcome to the Cinco de Mayo 2023 edition of On Iowa Politics. On the podcast this week, the Iowa legislature adjourns sine DA. Democrats reveal more of their caucus plan, but do they? And a noteworthy judge's ruling that relates to the proposed carbon capture pipelines in Iowa. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette and Cedar Rapids. With me this week are Gazette Deputy Bureau Chief Tom Barton. Hello, Tom. Hello. Is that how you pronounce it? Sine. It's not, it's not sine, sine die? Yeah. So if you're a purist to the Latin phrase, it is sine die. But a lot of I hear a lot of people say sine die. Yeah, I'm pronouncing it like an idiot this entire time. Sounds good. Uh, Yeah, uh, uh, the um, Secretary of the Senate, Charlie Smithson, uh, pronounced it sine die. And and, uh, uh, I meant to catch uh, Charlie. It's hard to because I'm up in the Senate gallery now. Um, I meant to catch him afterwards. And and because it was I, I like the way the way he pronounced it very carefully said to me, that I, I read a subtext of listen to me people this is how you pronounce this phrase <laughs> i don't know if that's what he was going for or not but that's what it sounded like to me um we also have lead des moines bureau chief caleb mccullough with us this week how you doing caleb i'm saying sine d yay on this very happy friday <laughs> <laughs> that is truly terrible <laughs> That, folks, is the kind of humor you get at the end of a legislative session. Wow. We have Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times with us, staying high and dry. More on that later. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Yes. River is receding. And um, I'm going to embarrass myself, but I was pronouncing it in my head as sign die. So. (laughs) (laughs) You're all kinds of wrong. (laughs) Oh, man. And finally, with us is Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal. Greetings, Jared. Aaron, um, everything you hear me say after this intro is actually um, AI. It's a uh, part of a uh, a cost control measure for uh, podcasting and writing uh, that's expected to save about twenty seven cents over five years. So, you know, man, Jared, you got to be careful about saying this stuff out loud. The bean counters may hear it and get ideas. <laughs> All right. Uh, first up this week, before we get into the legislative session, uh, let's start with that uh, judge's ruling in Clay County. Um, and it's one that, uh, to tie everything back into the Capitol, because I'm selfish and that's the only thing I know, um, uh, the people in those interested in those pipelines certainly paid attention to, and I know it turned some heads at the Iowa Capitol this week. Uh, so Jared, uh, the Sioux City Journal, covered this story. Uh, give us a little background. Um, and then uh, tell us what the judge ruled this week and why that's significant. So uh, first, I just want to say shout out to the journal's uh, Nick Hedrick for this story. He's uh, the hardest working uh, crime and courts reporter in the whole state. Um, On uh, on Wednesday, uh, there's a Clay County judge, um, John Sandy, who ruled that a uh, state law giving surveyors the, the right of entry to private property is unconstitutional. Um, And he said in part that the law governing these kinds of issues doesn't allow for just compensation for landowners um, who lose the right to deny entry onto their land. Um, And at one point, uh, Judge Sandy said, um, quote, the court can find no other reasonable 
interpretation in which Iowa Code Section 479B15 passes, quote unquote, constitutional muster. And um, the uh, the case in Clay County uh, revolves around a Sioux Rapids man, actually, uh, Martin Koenig, who pushed back against uh, Navigator Heartland Greenway plans to have third-party survey crews um, access his land. And of course, Navigator is one of the uh, three proposed uh, carbon capture pipelines in the uh, state. And uh, they're actually awaiting another ruling in a similar lawsuit in uh, Woodbury County, which deals with a Moville landowner. Um, there was a one-day trial uh, for that uh, case back in March, and there still hasn't been a ruling. Um, with the Clay County case, uh, after it got done, uh, Nick talked to a lawyer for uh, Mr. Koenig, and the lawyer said that he anticipates that uh, inevitably one or more of these cases is going to end up at the uh, Iowa Supreme Court because Navigator has said that they're going to challenge and appeal this ruling. Yeah, that's that's definitely an important point to make. And I've heard the same thing, that this is expected in one form or the other. Like like you said, there's multiple cases that this is ultimately going to get um, to to the to the Supreme Court. But it's it's definitely one that's being cheered for now. Anyways, this ruling is being cheered by the folks who are opposed to these pipelines. Right. And, and like I said, I, I saw at the Capitol this week, uh, the, some of the advocacy groups that are opposed to these projects uh, were very excited about this ruling. Um, Representative Steve Holt, uh, who ran the bill that the House passed, the Senate didn't end up taking up, but ran that bill that would have added some very uh, heightened um, you know, requirements before a, a pipeline could use eminent domain. Um, uh, he talked about that ruling this week. And, and, and when we asked him what might what future legislative efforts might look like. He referenced that judge's ruling as, you know, kind of saying like, we're encouraged by that and, and the direction that's going um, in, in landowner rights. Uh, yeah, so, so, so big, so big, like I said, more, more, it's going to be adjudicated again, but, but a big <laughs> ruling for the meantime. And uh, I'd I note that um, with any potential Iowa Supreme Court case, you know, even though the makeup of the court is um, seven judges all appointed by Republican governors, um, as you were talking about uh, with the session, this most recent legislative session definitely showed that there isn't a uniformity of opinion among Republicans or Democrats about this issue. So just because the, the judges have all been appointed by governors of one party, I don't think necessarily forecasts how the ruling might shake out. Yep, 100% agree. Uh, all right, obviously one that we'll be keeping an eye on and, uh, you know, this issue just even more generally, but uh, that that ruling and in, in, in future um, uh, legal wrangling on this will be uh, something we'll be keeping track of. Uh, all right, moving on now to the Iowa caucuses. The Iowa Democratic Party this week published its draft proposal for the 2024 caucuses, and the reveal was... Well, not super revealing, I, I don't think, anyways. Basically, most of what's in the plan that was published this week, we already essentially knew about. Um, the Democrats plan to caucus on the same night as Republicans and before any other state's presidential nominating contest, as prescribed in state law. And they plan to conduct their presidential preference by mail-in cards. And that's all essentially 
what Chairwoman Rita Hart and Iowa Democrats have been saying all along. It may not have been completely official, but what they did put down on paper is essentially what they've been telling us for months now. Uh, what we haven't known, questions like when will that mail-in presidential preference be conducted? How will it be secure? When will those results be reported? We still don't know because those details weren't in the draft plan. And that was intentional, Iowa Democrats say, so they can be flexible and tweak their process if desired. And, and basically what's happening here is Iowa Democrats are holding out hope that the new five early voting states will keep tripping over each other with all these conflicts with their own state laws, et cetera, et cetera. And Iowa will be able to step back into its first in the nation spot. I, I don't know how realistic it is, but that's clearly the dream. Uh, Caleb, am I wrong in my assessment? I, it, it, it seemed like mostly old news in that plan and nothing too terribly enlightening. Uh, did, did we learn anything new with this latest unveil? Yeah, I, I do think it was definitely lacking in some of the, the crucial details. And um, as you mentioned, I think that was, you know, partly intentional to make sure that uh, um, there is flexibility to move around um, if that becomes an option. Um, the original plan that they, that party announced did, um, if I remember correctly, uh, say that they, you know, specifically said they planned to announce the results of the mail-in preference cards on caucus night. Um, and then this plan now um, leaves the option to do it on a, at a different time, probably a later date in that. So this idea that they'll kind of separate the presidential preference and the party organizing caucus um, is at least more concrete in this plan, it seems like. Um, but yeah, and, and you know, I think that uh, looking at kind of all the competing pressures here, I understand why they want to be flexible there, but, you know, especially with the, the, the new law that their bill that will soon likely become law um, that uh, was passed this year that bans, uh, you know, presidential precinct uh, caucuses from being remote if the purpose is to select a presidential candidate and the party obviously, um, pretty committed to not having Iowa be, be first. Um, I, I don't really see a situation where they, the uh, presidential preference mail-in card, all that happens after the January slash February caucus, um, you know, based on the, what, how that the law, the, the bill is written and how the, it seems like the calendar is going to work. I think that that would be legal. And I think that it would, uh, you know, work with everybody's uh everybody's uh constraints on the party so yeah I, I don't know how it's all going to shake out but that seems to be the most likely end result yeah so i would just say um i think it's interesting i think it was yesterday that georgia's top election official um scheduled the state's um presidential primary date for i want to say march 12th um which would be uh, a week after Super Tuesday. Um, and Iowa DNC member Scott Brennan kind of foreshadowed this um, <clears throat> earlier this week in his argument defending kind of how and, and why Democrats were keeping their um, 2024 caucus plan flexible. Yeah, that's so if for anybody who may not be following this as closely as some of us do, I, I kind of referenced all the early voting states uh, tripping over each other. So we've got 
that that's one. G Georgia has a law that says their Republicans and Democrats have their primary on the same day. And what the National Democrats announced would move at least the Democrats primary and, and the Republicans there saying, well, we're not going to and, and, and we're not going to do that necessarily. We're not, and, and Tom's uh, point there illustrates that with what Georgia just did. Um, and then you have New Hampshire, which is it's kind of, it's kind of funny that uh, Iowa Republicans are all up in arms in New Hampshire. And, and I don't mean like understandably to a certain degree, but at the same time, New Hampshire is already fighting another battle, too, because they uh, say they're going to jump South Carolina because South Carolina was put number one in, in the Democrats plan. So New Hampshire is fighting a war on multiple fronts uh, now here. So um, this is the mess that we're talking about uh, that uh, that Iowa Democrats are referring to when they say they want to hold their water on some of the more detailed timing of this plan with the with again in their opinion the possibility that they could ultimately wind up still going first again i don't know how realistic that is but that that that's what they think so obviously this is going to continue to unfold uh over the coming uh weeks and months um and i, I don't know when it gets resolved i suppose uh, tom do you know the date off the top of my off the top of your head. So there's a 30 day comment period on this draft plan. And then it goes to the, the, the National Democrats Rules and Bylaws Committee. And then from there, how long do they have? Is there a, a date where they have to give final approval to all these states' plans? Um, yeah, and I can't recall off the top of my head um, what what that date is. Um, for some reason, I'm I'm I, I'm thinking it's sometime this summer. I can't remember yeah. if it's um, if they've got to set it in in June or July or August. But my my recollection is um, by sometime this summer. Um, I think that they're supposed to have that finalized. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and, and and whatever that is, obviously, then that's at the point where I guess we'll more officially know uh, one way or the other what how this. Uh, mess is going to unresolve itself. And then Caleb brought up the great point that now we have the added wrinkle of this new state law that uh, would essentially say Iowa Democrats can't do a mail-in presidential preference before the actual caucuses. If they want to do something and afterwards that they'd probably still be fine because that would be separating the caucuses from the presidential preference. But anything before that would violate the new state law. So that that's a new wrinkle into all this too. Getting getting back to some of the things you were talking about with the, the proposal and everything, Aaron, um, something a, a friend of mine who's worked um, campaigns before noted is that the, the contours of some of these um, ideas, like potentially holding off on reporting uh, results might not help instill faith in the uh, the process especially after a 2020 caucus, right. which was marred by, you know, tabulation issues. So, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that would be a, a, a interesting plan to have to sell to say, we're going to conduct this operationally on this date. And then two weeks later, we'll give you the results. Uh, yeah, especially like you said, given their recent history. Yeah. That, that'd be a tough sell. A bold strategy, Canton. 
<laughs> Excellent. 10 points for Gryffindor. Well done. <laughs> All right. No, oh, I'm wrong, House. Well, <laughs> so I made a reference from Dodgeball and you go to Harry Potter, so I'm confused. Yeah, you know, we can mix, we can mix metaphors here. There, there, there. There's no law against that. <laughs> All right. Finally, this week, obviously, we need to talk about the Iowa legislature. Uh, the session concluded midday Thursday. Midday Thursday, I say for emphasis, not midnight. Um, and that brought to a close one of, if not the most momentous session, certainly that I've covered in my just more than a decade on the beat. Um, for more on that, to uh, read the stories that we've already written and, and more coming up this weekend. Um, last week, we went around the horn with our predictions for what would pass and what would not. Um, I honestly haven't looked back to see how we did. And I don't know, maybe we sh I, I shouldn't. I feel we, like we did okay. We crushed it. Uh, every, every, every pick. <laughs> Every pick was a was a stone cold uh, lock of the week. <laughs> so we're not in uh, any danger of freezing cold takes on Twitter. No, nope. uh, burning us. Good. Bullet, good bulletproof. <laughs> <laughs> so this week, uh, since we're so good at it, let's go around the horn again. Um, uh, but no predictions this time. Let's look back and and discuss what stood out most to each of us this session. And and it could be anything. It could be. A particular bill, a particular debate, uh, moment in debate, uh, something one of the legislators wore, uh, anything that uh, stood out, uh, what stood out most of this session. Um, I, I won't I won't put it in any spots. Uh, raise your hand if you want to be the first to to volunteer here to, to go. Oh, wow. Look at that. All right. Well, I guess I'll start then, you cowards. <laughs> um, I. I I think what stood out to me, and I hope that not, now that nobody volunteered, I hope this is what someone was going to say, and I'm taking it from you. I have to come up with something else now. <laughs> um, I, uh, uh, I, I'm teasing, by the way, to listeners who don't uh, can't see that through the uh, through your radio. Um, the there was so many big bills. Um, it, it was kind of remarkable to me to think about how many um, of the biggest ones impact kids in Iowa this session. Um, it, we always have big bills and, and always things that are going to impact a lot of people. Um, it was striking to me again, how many of them literally will most uh, impact if not were specifically designed to impact uh, kids and, and, and the biggest ones uh, being the, um, again, depending on your preferred moniker, the child labor slash youth employment bill, um, the, uh, the uh, ban on uh, gender transition treatments for transgender kids in Iowa, um, all of the new regulations and requirements for schools and, and what books can be in schools and, and what can't that obviously impacts k-12 uh kids um and i feel like i had one more off the top of my head that I'm, I'm i'm forgetting now but um i mean these are these are and again leaving space here for people to agree or disagree with the bills themselves and and whether they were a good idea or not um i, I have a hard time thinking of another session where so many of the biggest pieces of legislation had a very direct <laughs> 
um, impact on just, um, you know, under 18, just Iowa kids. So, so um, uh, there's a lot of big stuff that went on, but, but that, that kind of stood out to me uh, in, in an interesting way. Yeah. Related, related to that. Um, I think the thing that stood out to me the most was just um, how much influence the governor had in this legislative session, particularly on those issues and just how um, successful she was um, in getting those um, those those priorities passed that in previous years um, have um, been um, hung up in the legislative process. Uh, notably, um, the the law creating the education savings account. I guess um, it was just remarkable just how fast that piece of legislation moved through the legislative process, um, considering um the, the 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 concerns and the objections from um republican lawmakers um to prior proposals um that were more watered down or more limited um in scope and this thing just you know sailing through in roughly um a, a month's time um i guess to me just showed the amount of um of, of influence and and um, kind of power um, the the governor wields um, within the Iowa Republican Party, um, and just how effective she was um, in inserting herself into um, the June uh, primaries and endorsing um, uh, challengers to, um, to to sitting GOP incumbents um, who um, had been. Um, opposed to you know her her previous efforts to try and pass um legislation allowing tax funded taxpayer funded dollars to be used to help Iowa families pay for private school expenses um I mean I, I think that that's just the biggest highlights of, of this session um and then you go on from there and and you look at um, the state government reorganization bill um and um, um uh, what was the other one I was thinking of? Oh, um, and, and, and tort reform. I mean, if, if you look at the governor's condition of the state address and you look at um, the priorities that she laid out in that, I mean, almost every single one of those um, got passed and made it across the finish line. Now, th there were some some pieces of or some priorities, some pieces that, that didn't make it through. I guess the one that sticks out most to me is um, behind the counter um access to, to 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 birth control but i mean by and by and large you look through the governor's condition of the state address and you can just you know cross off the things that um got done this year and i think that was just remarkable yeah and it, and it illustrates to the point that you raised uh tom that we we say we use the phrase a lot elections have consequences right and i, I it, it's hard to not draw a pretty straight line between as you noted, those primary elections, and then that, and then, and then, then in addition to that, a, a resounding victory in the general election, and what happened uh, this session. All right, who else? With um, with the educational savings account thing, I would note that there's been uh, more recent reporting that uh, Des Moines Catholic schools are raising their uh, tuition by 10 percent for the coming year. There's two schools in Cedar Rapids that are seeing uh, tuition hikes of 40%. And then there's a Dubuque uh, Catholic school that's having a 29% increase. So it's interesting to see the ripple effects of that uh, particular legislation. 
And then I, I think, Aaron, when you were talking about the, the different child stuff, I think so much of that focus, especially, uh, you know, as it relates to kids in schools, is a ripple effect of COVID and all of the, the lockdown concerns and, you know, the keeping kids out of schools or the idea that making kids wear masks is child abuse and, and all those different sorts of things. I think so much of this legislation around kids that we see now has its genesis in, in the pandemic. Yeah, and um, kind of going off the kind of ties together, everything you've all said, but uh, I think this is just like one of the most consequential in recent memory um, uh, sessions for education in general. I mean, with with their uh, large majorities, Republicans have been really successful in kind of building the education system that that they want and and kind of in their image. So you know, you have obviously the uh, uh, private school choice bill, education savings account. Um, you, quite, you know, big restrictions on what schools can teach uh, in LGBTQ matters uh, and, you know, larger transparency measures for um, parents that get involved in their schools, uh, restrictions on library books, um, and then even at the higher education level um, in the, uh, you know, the budget for the, um, the public universities, uh, they froze spending to diversity, equity, and inclusion um, efforts for at least, I think, until the regents finish a study on what um, those the schools are spending that money on, um, and so yeah, I mean we're seeing a lot of changes to uh, you know all education at all levels and, and how uh, you know things that Republicans want to um, to see changed or taken out. That that's a great one. If I can just pin one addendum onto that, it's it, I mean I, we've probably mentioned this before on the on the podcast, but it, it's amazing to me to think how far that school choice program came and, and compared to what didn't pass in previous sessions to what then did pass this session and, and they went the opposite direction. It got dramatically bigger and that, that's the one that passed. So it's, it's a, and, and that's a great one because I've, I've, I've had that thought multiple times throughout this session that this, um, this is really changing the landscape in, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, for public education, uh, public and private now education um, in Iowa, and and the impacts of which we'll see. Maybe it'll be a good thing. Uh, maybe it'll maybe it'll it'll hurt one entity or the other. Um, we'll see. Anybody else uh, before to have any thoughts on the session before we CNA DA our <laughs> analysis. Yeah, um, I guess another thing that also stood out um, to me was just how much national politics um, influenced and impacted. Um, I was, I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you, you look primarily at, um, uh, you know, these these bills in the legislation um, related around um, parental rights and school transparency um, and um, issues about um gender affirming care for minors and um, school policies related to um, uh, uh, transgender students and, and then also um, the um, youth employment child labor bill. I mean, you, you look at all of that and you look at how these bills in other states are, are, are so similar. Um, and it was just kind of striking to me, um, again, how much of that legislation um, again, is, is influenced by, by national politics and just how similar these bills are um, that are moving through um, these state legislatures. It, it's 
it's definitely like nothing new for you know like governors and everything to talk about competing with one another when it comes to like economic matters like oh you know we need to lower our, our tax rate so we can attract new businesses or anything like that but these past couple years with this like nationalizing of politics at the state level it, it's definitely been a newer trend now of governors especially republican governors um, talking about being competitive with other Republican states when it comes to legislating on cultural issues, that's not something I remember as much of in, in the past as we definitely see now. And certainly yeah. not in Iowa. Yeah. Do you know why the behind, do you have an inkling of why the behind the counter birth control measure didn't pass? So that's a great question and, and, and a timely one and and, and... Tom, do you have anything to add to this? Um, but we asked um, uh, again, as so as often is so often the case on Friday. I'm just coming off the Iowa press that we asked Speaker Grassley about that specifically, and um, the, it just they they don't have the support in their caucus in the House Republican Caucus, and and it's and it's it's one of those uh, from both angles kinds of situations. So they have some people who are okay with the idea, but maybe they want it to look a little different. And there are some House Republicans who wanted a little more, um, um, a little more uh, in the bill requiring um, checkups eventually, um, periodic checkups with a physician. Um, and then you have, they have a wing of their caucus that is just flat out opposed to the idea um, and of, of expanding birth control access. So, so, so he's again to borrow a phrase from myself from literally like five minutes ago. He's fighting a war on two fronts um, in that caucus, and they just don't have um, the votes for it there. I, I don't know why they're different from Senate Republicans in that respect, um, but that's where that group is, and 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 uh, they they House Republicans can't uh, get enough um, to move it. Uh, obviously, if they threw it on the floor, it would pass easily because every Democrat would vote for it. Um, but they're not willing to put it on, on the floor without a strong majority of just Republicans within their caucus. Um, and, and they don't have that uh, right now because of those kind of two lanes. Yeah, I heard the same thing from um, Representative uh, Ann Meyer. Um, she said the, the, the same thing. Um, and uh, Governor Reynolds was also asked about this um, yesterday and said that uh, this remains a, a priority of hers. And so, um, yeah, you'll you'll see this issue revisited um, next session. Um, and uh, I don't know, we'll kind of see where it goes from there. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, just one more before we go that I'm going to add. Um, and this is more of a point of personal privilege, but uh, one thing that stood out for me this session was the Gazette, pardon me, the Gazette Lee Bureau team, um, which was uh, in its current construction, the first session for uh, us. There, there's been some turnover in recent years for those of you who uh, have been readers of the papers for a long time. Um, and uh, Turnover was... in the journalism industry? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this was the first session with Tom, uh, Caleb, and I working together to cover a session. And uh, um, I want to give all the credit in the world to, to these two guys uh, who busted their humps um, 
all session long and, and I feel good about the work we did. Nobody's perfect and we'll strive to be uh, better every day next year too. Um, um, but uh, um, I'm really proud of the work that we did this session and I hope our readers uh, feel good about the information that we delivered them to. So I wanna, I wanna say my thanks and, and kudos to, to Tom and Caleb here. Um, uh, as we close down this session, so much All appreciated. Right. Couldn't have done it without your leadership. Uh, I've just tried to stay out of the way. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we go, real quick, uh, it's not very political, but it's certainly uh, newsworthy and interesting. Um, I want to check back in with Sarah. Uh, you all over in uh, the Quad Cities were bracing for some flooding that you did get uh, this past week, but maybe not quite as bad as, as had been uh, feared or projected. How are things going over there in, in Eastern Iowa, Sarah? Yeah, so um, Monday we crested in the Quad Cities here at the Rock Island Gauge at 21.51 feet, which is about number seven on the list of historic crests. Um, and this flood was really unique because it was mostly snowmelt from up north. It was really dry locally. And so it was difficult to project what the river level would be. So there was at one point that they were talking that it might be as high as 22.5 feet, which would have, um, or, or even there was an outlier of 25 feet flooding. So that was, that was obviously very unlikely, but everybody was kind of bracing for the worst and it ended up um, coming in a little bit lower, which was nice. And, um, and upstream in Dubuque and Bellevue 2023 was either a top three or top four in their flood history. Um, and the, a lot of national news especially came to Davenport because of the striking imagery. If you haven't seen it or been here, Davenport does not have a flood wall and is one of the largest communities that doesn't have one. And so it allows a lot of the parks to flood and it really um, puts a lot of things underwater. And then they rely on a system of temporary sand filled barriers to uh, keep city infrastructure and a lot of the downtown dry. Um, so a lot of eyes are on Davenport this year because this is the biggest flood since 2019 record when a sand-filled barrier broke and sent floodwaters gushing into the downtown and caused like 30 plus million dollars in damages. So this year the city built its temporary barriers in that area stronger, wider, and taller. So um, on the Army Corps of Engineers recommendations and they seem to have worked. So. All right. Good news. We like to hear that. All right. That's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, tell your friends and subscribe to us on streaming audio services like iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon. And now that you've listened to the On Iowa Politics podcast, make sure you're also subscribed to the On Iowa Politics newsletter, where every morning in your inbox, you receive all the latest politics and government coverage from our team here. You can subscribe to that free newsletter at the Gazette's website, thegazette.com. And again, just to tie a bow on that legislative session, uh, Tom, Caleb, and I have more stuff uh, um, taking a look at uh, the big things that did pass, the big things that didn't. So so make sure you watch for that over the weekend um, and, and in next week's newsletter. And lastly, don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Muscatine Journal, Cedar Rapids Gazette, Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier, Mesa City Globe Gazette, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Sioux City Journal. Check out the stories about that uh, 
pipeline trial, eminent domain trial about the flooding, uh, go read it all. We appreciate it. The Surf Zombies will play us out this week. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be featured on the podcast, please send us a sound file. For Tom Barton, Caleb McCullough, Sarah Watson, Jared McNett, and our producer, Stephen Colbert, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thanks for listening. Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.